0: Thank you worship team, you can go ahead and be seated. Man, it is good uh, to see you, it's good to be back. If you are new or you've been here the last couple of weeks and you're like, hey, who's this guy? Uh, My name is Matt Manning, I'm the senior pastor here. In the last couple of weeks I've been gone. Uh, because Pastor Kim, the former senior pastor here at Crossroads, uh, and I with 41 other people were touring the Holy Land of Israel and taking in all the sights and sounds um, that, uh, that we read about uh, in our Bible. And so it was a really amazing trip. So grateful. Last Saturday, uh, we got to visit the Garden Tomb. And uh, good news is, it's still empty and so, yeah, so, you know, we are a people of hope, we are a people who can stand and celebrate today, we can lift our voices in praise uh, to the God who has saved us, because the grave is indeed uh, empty. And so, um, before I get too far into this, uh, man, the past three weeks, Pastor Chris did a fantastic job with Breaking Chains. Can we just appreciate uh, him if you, yeah... If you missed out on that sermon series, I would encourage you just to go back check it out online at crossroadsabc.com It was a great great series that you can uh, that you can check into uh, if you are new today, um, one of the things that we do every week is we gather together and uh, we come together to worship, we come together to sing, we come together to pray uh, we come together to open God's word and today as we jump into this, we are starting a brand new sermon series today called the Body Now the way that I wanna set up uh, this sermon series is actually to go back to a pretty, pretty pivotal moment in Jesus's life. That near the end of Jesus's ministry here on this earth, he looked at his disciples and he's like, boys, we're gonna take a field trip. And so Jesus takes his 12 disciples to the northern part of Israel, to this place that we call Mount Hermon in the city of Caesarea Philippi. Now Caesarea Philippi in the day of Jesus was known for its pagan worship to the Greek god of Pan and to the Canaanite gods of Baal and the Asherah. And for the disciples, as Jesus is leading them on this field trip to Caesarea Philippi, it would have been a complete shock for them because this was the red light district of their world. This, was, this is where all the shady and, uh, you know, things that you don't talk about, all of that happened there. See, at the foot of the mountain, the foot of Mount Hermon, was this spring of water that runs into a cave. And for the people of Caesarea Philippi, and really for the people of Jesus' time living in the Israel area during this time, that it was the place that was the gates to the underworld. Like, literally, this cave was the gates of hell. And what the people in uh, Israel believed at this time, the people who followed these gods believed, is that every year these deities, that they would descend into the cave, into the underworld, and that it was the people's responsibility to call them back out. And so what they would do is they would go to the edge of this cave, up the cliff at the top of this cave, and they would stand there and and they would start to entice the gods out by doing these sexual pagan acts. We called them high places in the Old Testament. And they would do these to try to entice the God of Pan and the Asherah out. And then they would take their firstborn boys and they'd stand at the cliff of this cave and they'd throw their firstborn boys into it as a human sacrifice to entice Baal out. I mean, literally Caesarea Philippi was a whole city of people knocking on the gates of hell, knocking on the doors of hell. Just beyond the cliff is this spring, and the spring, was where the pagan temple stood. And behind the temple was the place into the rock where all these altars were carved out where you could put the idols uh, to the gods. In fact, if you visited today, you can still see it. Right here is Caesarea Philippi in modern day. Over there is the cave that all of this would happen in. And so for the disciples standing there, um, this this was pretty serious stuff. And so Jesus brings the disciples to this place and he's standing at the edge of the water with the temple as the backdrop, and Jesus looks at his disciples with all of the world's religions, all of the world's philosophy behind him, and he looks at his disciples, and he says, hey, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? Now, you gotta imagine, this is, this is incredibly stark contrast. This is all the world's religions, all the world's philosophy, standing behind Jesus, and Jesus goes, who do people think that I am? And the disciples start to answer. Is it says, some think that you're Elijah, the great prophet of old. Others think you're John the Baptist, reincarnate. Other, you know, other people mention other prophets. As the disciples are answering, Jesus turns his gaze toward Peter, the one whom, whom looks so much like us, the one who is called, instructed, sometimes walking on water, other times sinking like a rock, you know? The guy who is so full of understanding and yet oftentimes lacks so much faith. But nevertheless, at this point, knowing and seeing who Jesus is, he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, I believe you, that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in that moment, Jesus' eyes start to move from the Old Testament temple system and moves away from the religious elites of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And as he looks upon his disciples, he sees this brand new community and it moves him to make one of the most amazing promises in all of the scripture where Jesus looks at Peter and he says, on this confession that you have just made that I'm the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, that I'm going to build my church and not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against it. Like this is a hinge moment in the history of humanity, where Jesus is moved to make this grandiose promise that something called the church is coming in the future and it is so special that nothing will be able to stop it and some 2,000 years later, people would still be participating in it. And so here's the question. With that as the backdrop to this series, what is the church? I mean, how would you describe the church today? If I brought you up here to answer that question, what would you say? I mean, if we're, being, if we're being real here, we have a bit of trouble with that question, don't we? I mean, is the church just simply a building that you come to? Is it an event that, you, that you're a part of? Like, who gets to be a part of it? Is it local or global? And, you know, if you are a Christian, if you are a Jesus follower, like, can you opt out of it? And on top of all of that, like, what is the church actually supposed to do? Is it to worship? Is it to evangelize? Is it to grow? Is the church exist to feed the hungry? Does the church exist to elect politicians? Does the church exist to stand against the people that it doesn't agree with? And maybe you're here today, and as you look at the church, maybe you see the church as like this spiritual gas station of sorts where you come in and you get your spiritual gas tank filled up. Or maybe for others, it's the pharmacy where you come when you're feeling sick. Or maybe for others of you, it's the good place for old-fashioned family fun. You know, you can trust your kids here and, you know, a good program at a low price. For others of you, maybe it's a form of in- entertainment. You know, you can come into this building with air conditioning, soft, you know, soft chairs, you get to hear a TED talk, some good music, and you leave feeling better than when, you, than when you came. I mean, just engage anyone, Christian or non, and ask them the question, what is church? And you will get as many answers as there are people in the room. And as you ask that question, you'll find out that the perspective on church or what people define church ranges everything from good, bad, to totally indifferent. The Chuck Olson, the founder of Prison Fellowship years ago, wrote these words when it comes to the church. He said, the hard truth is that at best, the church has a genuine identity crisis. And at worst, we have substituted an institutionalized religion for the life-changing dynamic of a living faith. If that statement is true, and I believe it is, and if the promise that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 16 as he's looking and gazing at Peter is as special as the scriptures make it out to be, then I cannot imagine that there's a more critical issue for us than rediscovering the biblical view of church. See, when Jesus speaks about the church in Matthew chapter 16, when he utters that word, the Greek word that he uses is the word ecclesia. In English, ecclesia means Gathering. Now the problem for us as English speakers is when we hear the word gathering, immediately we think of a place to come to to participate in an event, in an event. And that shapes the way that we view the church. However, when we open up the New Testament and we begin to read the New Testament authors what we find is that when they speak about this ecclesia when they speak about the church they're not speaking about this like they're not speaking about this gathering or this place but rather they speak about it as an organism they speak of it as a body I mean, just look at a few of these verses throughout the New Testament, starting in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that is in everything, that he might be preeminent. We turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and it says that, that we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That verse goes on and says, which is the body, the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. We get to the book of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews writes this about suffering. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. That when the New Testament writers write about this ecclesia that Jesus spoke about, they're not just using this simple analogy, but they're actually revealing a mystery to us. That at least from the New Testament perspective, that when it's talked about the church, the church is not an organization, it's not a building, it's not a place, it's not an institution, but a living, breathing organism, that the church is alive. And so over these next five weeks, what we wanna do is we wanna rediscover what the church is all about. And in doing so, we wanna remove kind of the 2,000 years of history that we've built around what the church looks like and actually go to the scriptures and go, what is this meaning when the New Testament talks about the body? Like, why is the church referred to as a body over and over and over again in the New Testament? And so the way that we're going to do that is by going to one of my most favorite books, probably my most favorite book in the Bible, which is the book of Ephesians, all right? If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. It's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We'll put it on the screen for you. But Ephesians is this letter that's written by the Apostle Paul, and it is the all-out celebration of the riches, the extraordinary riches that are ours in Jesus because of his mercy and his grace. Like that's what Ephesians is all about, that because of Jesus's mercy and grace that we get these these riches that are ours in him. And Paul's like, this is a celebration, this is big. And in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians, this amazing little letter, 10 times in six chapters, Paul uses the body to refer to, define, to reveal the mystery of the ecclesia that not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against. We pick it up in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Here's what Paul writes to us. He says, for this reason, you should pause there and ask the question, what reason? Like what What reason is Paul talking about here? Well, the first 14 verses of this letter, Paul tells us that before the foundations of the world, for reasons that you and I will never truly understand on this side of heaven, that God chose you, that God chose for you to be set apart to be holy, to be blameless, to be without blemish so that he might pour out onto you every spiritual blessing that he has to offer. And he does it because he loves you. He absolutely loves you so much that he has adopted you that you are the heir to the family fortune. And and he's so committed to his love for you that not only has he made you the heir of the family fortune, but Paul tells us that he has sealed us by placing his spirit in us, that God's very present dwells in us, which is an amazing truth, amazing reality, because it means for us that in order for us to experience the presence of God doesn't mean that we have to participate in the Old Testament temple structure, but rather the presence of God is in us right now, which means when you're family, your family, that you are the people of God that you are the ecclesia, the gathered ones of Jesus. Paul says, for that reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Now pause there because what Paul is saying, in other words, is that you are the people of Jesus, that you are the gathered ones of Jesus because of your faith in Jesus. That Greek word there, For faith is a word that simply means believe. It means to believe or to trust in. In fact, earlier in chapter one, if you have your Bible, you'll see that it says the believing ones and it's the same word there. It's the faithful ones, the trusting ones. That's that's what it's talking about here. What defines us as the ecclesia of Jesus is that we believe, that we are people of faith when it comes to Jesus. Now, interestingly, that when it comes to our culture, when it comes to our society, there's this tendency to believe that Christians are, are people of faith, that we are people of belief, that followers of Jesus, that they, that they build their lives around faith. And the rest of the world, it builds its worldviews on science and intellects, what can be seen, facts. And so what you get to in our society is that when you're a Christian, when you're a, G- a follower of Jesus, that, that followers of Jesus are like simple-minded. They're wishful. And the rest of the world, you see that they're, that they're people of intellect and silent science and, and what can be seen. Let me just tell you today, that's complete hogwash. It's complete hogwash. That every single person in our culture has a worldview and every worldview is filled with faith assumptions. Listen, everybody has faith. The question is this, is what is the object of your faith and what is the credibility of that object? Every single worldview has faith, but the question then becomes what is the credibility of the object that you're putting your faith in? For example, let's just use atheism. When it comes to atheism, oftentimes atheism is thought of as the polar opposite to Christianity. That atheism stands over here, people, Jesus followers, they are over here. That it's the exact opposite, it's the polar opposites. And as an atheist, you might think that you operate on the basis of of science and sites and fact, but the reality is that atheism is filled with faith assumptions. Let me just give you a few examples. The first is, is that when it comes to atheism, that an atheist believes by faith that there is no God. Science has never proven that. In fact, in order for you to prove that there is no god would mean that you have to be present everywhere at the exact same time in every place in the universe and the only way that you can do that is for you yourself to become god. See the very foundation of atheism is built upon a faith assumption. You can take it further. To be an atheist, you have to believe that something came out of nothing. Listen, nobody has ever observed that. In fact, science would say that that isn't even unreasonable to think that that can happen. That something can come out of nothing. For an atheist, they have to believe, they have to have faith that something came from nothing. That atheism is filled with faith assumptions. See, every worldview is filled with faith assumptions. And Paul says, when it comes to the ecclesia, the belief is grounded in Christ Jesus. That is the reality that God became a person, walked on this earth, taught, did miracles in the pinnacle of his life, went to the cross in order that he might die for sins. Three days later, he woke up, ran out of the grave, and then ascended into heaven. And then that story is not just based in some fairy tale, but historical fact, because hundreds of people saw Jesus walking around after he was crucified. See, what the phrase in the Lord Jesus means is that when you put your faith in, when you put your belief in, when you put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, a union is established between you and Jesus in such a way that everything in Jesus that can be shared is shared with you, that you belong to him, that you are in him. That there is a union by faith that all that he is, listen, he is for you. I mean, it is absolutely breathtaking to realize the love and the extraordinary mercies, the riches that have been given to you by the God of this universe. And so Paul says, in light of all of that, he says, "I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you as the gathered ones of Jesus. I'm praying, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then all of a sudden Paul breaks out into prayer and he tells him what he's praying for. He says that God, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, awakened, so that you could see. And then he follows this with three things that he's praying for. He says, first, I want your your hearts enlightened. I want your hearts to be able to see that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. To which you, (laughs) Paul, what's that hope? And Paul says, the hope that you have is the expectant future that no matter what this world deals with you to you, no matter the trials that you have to face, no matter the tribulations that you have to walk through in this life, that at the end, that you will walk with God in glory forever. That's the hope that we have as Christians. And Paul furthers that along in another, in another, Bible, in another Bible book, and he says, look, the one who began all this in you, that is to say God, he's faithful to carry this out to the very end. Like, surely he's gonna get it done. And Paul's like, man, I pray that you see your hope that you've been called to. He says, I want, you to, I want you to see that. He says, then I'm praying, secondly, that you might see what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now be careful with this verse because Paul's not talking about our inheritance here. Paul's talking about God's inheritance. Like get this, that you are God's inheritance. You are the treasure of God. Like God celebrates that you belong to him. Paul says, I want, I want you to feel that in your toes. That God looks upon you like you're his treasure. He says, I'm praying for that. He says, the third thing I'm, I'm praying for, verse 19, is that you would see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might. In other words, that we would understand that God is so committed to us living out this hope of our calling, that he is so committed to us becoming new in our life in Christ, that he actually has sent his spirit, his presence, to live within us, to give us the power in order to live out our lives the way that he's calling us to. And so we look at this and we go, well, how powerful is this power, Paul? Like if if this is the power of God that's been given to me as a gathered one of Jesus so that I might live out the hope of my calling, like how powerful is this power? And Paul goes, "Let let me just remind you in verse 20, like this power is the power that's at work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right hand in the heavenly places. And in doing so, he placed him, verse 21, far above, next slide, Michelle, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Paul says, this power is the power that raised Jesus from the dead and set him on the right hand of the Father. And this is the power that's in you. Like Jesus is now over, because of this power, everything in the universe. He's over all the angels, over all of the demons. He's over every government, every king, every queen, every president, that God is over, Jesus is over, everything in this universe, that everything sits under his authority. And I'm telling you, if we could just tune in like a radio and just get a glimpse of Jesus in the heavenlies, it would change our lives. It would change how we walk through this life, realizing that that very presence that put Jesus on the throne is the very presence that lives in here every moment of our lives, as people who are committed to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Verse 22. Paul says, "Just in case you're not getting this, let me get a little repetitive here. God put all things under His. that's Jesus' feet." And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness or manifestation of him who fills all in all. Now the language is a little difficult here, but what Paul is saying is that he who reigns supreme over all, that is Jesus, is also the head of the church, which is his body in order that Jesus might be manifested in the world in which we live. So put all this together. Paul says because of the great riches that are yours in Jesus, because of his mercy and grace, that we find in verses 14 through 21 that we collectively now get to experience all of these riches together as one in the body, which means that we're redeemed together, that we're justified together, that we're forgiven together, that we're loved by God together, that we are perfected together, that together we get to live forever. And all of this that you experience as ecclesia, as gathered ones, belongs to Jesus. That he is the head. Now, when Paul talks about the head, he's speaking about it in two ways. First, when he talks about the head, he's speaking about it as a place of authority. That Jesus is the authority over the church. He is the authority over the body. He is the authority over your life. There is no such thing as no Lord. That Jesus lived his life teaching us what does it look like to be the people of God? What does it look like to be a part of the family of God? Jesus says, that's what it looks like. I'm, I'm the head over the church. That I'm the authority over the church. And we have to realize in this moment What it cost God to create this. It cost God the death of his son on the cross in order to initiate this movement, this body moving forward. And so what you share with the persons that you're sitting next to today in the Lord Jesus is a life, is an inheritance, is a blessing, is a union that is so great, so profound that it exceeds every other value that you will ever experience in this earth. And it never ends. It goes on and on, my friends. See, the idea that Jesus is the head carries with it this this idea of authority. It's why you'll rarely ever hear me say that Crossroads is my church, or this is my staff. Like, I don't own the church. I've been made the senior pastor. I have the great privilege of leading this church, but I don't own it. I mean, come on, where was I when all this was initiated? Where were you when all of this came together? I mean, how foolish would it be for me to think that I have any ownership of what we do? I don't own any of this, Jesus is the head. We're just the body, including me. I mean, we live and breathe and are part of his body because the extravagant riches that are given to us by Jesus and his mercy and his grace. There are churches all over the nation that would call themselves a church and yet refuse to put themselves under the authority of Jesus. Can I just say that a church where Jesus is not the head is not a church. A body without a head is dead. That's what it is. The church is his body, and we have a responsibility as his body to be manifestation of him to this world. The second thing is that it carries with us, or it carries with it this idea that Jesus is the head, is that the head is indispensable to life. A body can't function without a head. And so the picture that Paul is painting for us here as believers is that the church is this living, breathing organism. And with Jesus as the head, that the purpose of it is to saturate this entire world with his presence, that that's the way in which we move out. And when we get this, then it changes the way that we completely see the church because you start to realize that you don't go to church, you are church. This isn't something to attend, this is something that you are. That the church, when it comes to the New Testament, is this, that the church is not an event or a place that you come to, but rather the body made up of redeemed people of God who have been saved by the power of God, this is what Paul's telling us, for the purpose of God in this world. When you get that, it changes everything. The church is not a what, the church is a who. You are the church, you are the body. That is to say, you are the means at which God is at work in and through this world. So every day, here's the application, that every day as you walk in life, as you embody the church, what that means for you is everything that you do counts in this world because church isn't just something you do for a couple hours on Sunday morning. Church is what you do every single moment of your life, that you are the ecclesia, that you are the called out ones, you are the body of Jesus manifesting his glory to the world. That's our purpose as the body. That's what Jesus' head says, man, this is where you're moving, this is what you're doing. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna fill this out and we're gonna go, okay, so what does this look like practically for us? Like, like, what does that mean? How am I a part of the body? What does that look like? What do I do? So we're gonna talk that out over the next four weeks, but before we get there, for some of you, I can imagine that you're sitting here and you're going, Matt, all of this is really amazing. Like, like man, to walk with Jesus, to, to be a part of his family, to, to see all of these riches that are mine, but the reality is, is is I'm not with Jesus. That this isn't, this isn't me and maybe you're here today. And you, you've walked in and, and you're searching. You're searching for the hope that Paul talks about. I just want you to know that I believe you being here today is no accident. That I believe before the foundations of the world for reasons that are unknown to you and me that we'll probably never know until we get on the other side of eternity. That God chose you. That God chose you to be holy, to be set apart, to be blameless, to be without blemish, so that he might be able to pour out every every spiritual blessing that he has to offer to you. That you are his treasure, that he has such deep love and affection for you, that when he looks upon you, he smiles, he delights in you. And today, you can believe by putting your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so if you have questions about what that looks like, if that resonates deeply inside of your soul, we would love to have the conversation with you. We try to make it pretty easy here. You can just text the word Jesus to the number that Angie mentioned earlier. It's our text line It's 720-513-1933. There's a real person on the other end of that line. We have people on staff who are ready to have conversations like that with you. Before we go to communion, would you bow your head with me? Father, we step here today realizing that when you made the promise Jesus, all the way back in Matthew chapter 16, some 2,000 years ago, in a city that is nothing more than ruins today. That when you looked into the future and saw the new community, you saw us. God, how unbelievable that is. Jesus, you saw us as your treasure. as people that you delight in, as someone that you would die for, as someone you would save. And so Lord, today, as a church, we believe our faith is in you and you alone. And in doing so, Lord, we are proud to be able to stand up and to be a part and to be called your body Lord, as we go into this world, I pray that you would lead us, that we truly would be the manifestation of your fullness to this world, that when people look upon us, that they see you, that they're drawn to you, that you move in them in such a way that they love you. Jesus, we're thankful for what you accomplished on the cross and together we remember as we go to communion. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We come together around communion. Jesus uses the illustration of a body, his body again, a little differently than the way that we talk about it today. But he said, when taking the bread of a meal that the disciples had participated in many times, he took the bread and he said, I want you to know that this is my body broken for you. What he meant by that is on the cross, I give my body for the forgiveness of your sins. And so today we eat and we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. In blood we find life, that this is your salvation. And so today we drink with great hope that Jesus is with us. going to invite everybody in-house to go ahead and stand. We're going to sing to our Lord and Savior Jesus today. If you need prayer over the next few minutes, we'd love to pray for you in-house. You can make your way to the banner in the back. Online, you can just click the button, but let's sing to our Savior and our Lord today.